Hello and welcome to episode 6 of AS for Architecture with me, Ambrose Gillick. For this episode, I spoke with architect extraordinaire Sarah Wigglesworth about her work, practice and design philosophy. We are very apt to ignore the sensory in architecture, the sensory and the tactile, and the textural and all of those things. So, you know, going back to ideas about architecture coming out of weaving and women's crafts and things like that is, is of great interest to me. But it's also, you know, I really got very excited by the work of certain artists. I mean, I love Philida Barlow's work. I love Jessica Stockholder's work, where she'll take, you know, really scrappy old things and put them together in really interesting ways. And that kind of um, collage of things I find really interesting, but it's not accidental. I think it's quite deliberate. A Little Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to A Little Architecture. I'm talking today to Sarah Wigglesworth, uh, the architect in London. Sarah, would you introduce yourself? Hi, Ambrose. I'm Sarah. Um, I lead my 10-strong practice in um, North London, which I've now been running for maybe 27 years or something like that. Yeah. 20, that was quick. I, I was, um, so where did you train? So maybe we could, if we could, um, it's always nice to hear about where people train because your practice is well known and you're a very well-known architect uh, with a great reputation. Um, and I, I suppose it would be nice to kind of understand your journey to this point. Oh. Okay, well, I'll try and keep it brief because I'm uh, a bit apt to go wandering off into all sorts of um, funny areas. But anyway, so I went to Cambridge University from school and I did my both my undergrad and my master's there. And it was a funny education in that I started when I would say the school was old school, what called architecture. It was very modernist and it was interested in systems and technology. And there was an obvious interest in the, the, the kind of canonic greats like Corbusier, Alto and so forth. And at that time it was run by Bill Howell. But in my first year, or actually might have even been before I went up, he got run over by a bus and was killed and was taken over by Sandy Wilson as an interregnum, who then thereafter became the head of school. And he brought with it a kind of very erudite, arts-based sort of alter the alternative modernism type of idea and recruited people like Peter Blundell-Jones. And in my third year, he began to recruit people from the AA. So Robin Middleton, an amazing Enlightenment scholar, for example, um, Joseph Rickvert, Danny Borvesely, and Peter Carl. So at that point, the whole thing changed. I wasn't very happy with my undergrad and took two years out. And I went to work for Levitt Bernstein, which was a complete awakening for me because it was just so grounded and down to earth compared with what we been doing sort of you know Cambridge colleges student housing um art galleries and that kind of thing as our programs and and I really wanted to sort of get the nuts and bolts experience and I did that and then I went traveling for a year and worked in America for a bit which was very different and kind of like factory 
And then I went and then I had a massive dilemma because I didn't want to go back to the same regime. But actually what had happened was it had completely changed in that two years. And when I and so in the end, having looked around at different places, I decided to go back. And actually, I think it was the best thing I did, because at that point it was like I need to learn what uh, this new regime has got to tell me, which was essentially a kind of philosophically grounded um education in kind of middle European architecture and phenomenology. And suddenly it's kind of begun to fill, fill in, fall into place. And I attended every single lecture that Dalibor gave that year, first, second, third year, which I'd missed. So it was kind of get up to speed really fast while doing his studio. Um, and, and kind of in a way it was my making. I mean, it sort of really just suddenly clicked into place. Um, and then I left and I didn't really know what to do because I didn't really follow the I don't really want to go down a route where I was working for a big name because I've always been a little bit skeptical of hero worship and you know following the stars and also that kind of well you know what I mean Ambrose that sort of patriarchal handing on of the gift from the master so I actually went, um, well, firstly, actually, I, I did do a, a short stint with Nicholas Hare Architects, who was working on the competition for the um, uh, the Covent Garden Opera House at the time, which was eventually won by, um, uh, oh, God, what are they called? Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, and we so we lost that. And then I kind of lost momentum. And I went to work for a couple of other firms who not well known and just, you know, trod the boards and mm. kind of learnt learnt the trade, did lots of working drawings and stuff like that. And then then I got rather disillusioned with practice actually. And I felt like the debate about what it could be, I mean that that's when it first occurred to me that the difference between practice as in a very practical thing and the kind of expectations that you have as an architecture student for the best kind of architecture there's just such a mismatch mm -hmm. and I couldn't find that kind of intellectual stimulation in practice and so I was wondering what to do when I suddenly someone in, invited me back to Cambridge to do some teaching <laughs> and I thought oh that's going to be great that's going to fill the gap but the moment I told the person I was working for that this had happened and went down sort of to tell him the good news, he said, well, if you're going to do that, then we can't employ you anymore. I mean, I think teachers are losers, basically said. And, you know, they're the people who can't hack it in the real wide world. And so if that's what you want to do, then you haven't got a place here. And I was so shocked. I was just and then. And so anyway, it rolled on like that until I thought, crikey, I'm just going to go out on my own. And at that stage, I was teaching at Kingston University. And in a way, that was another education because suddenly there was a bunch of very young people all recruited by Tim Bell, who was the uh, sort of second in command there. And um, he He'd actually been tipped off by some people in Cambridge who'd been doing the MPhil there. And so he approached me and I just thought, yeah, yeah, that could be really interesting. And there was some amazing people like Kath Schonfield, Jonathan Hill, Jeremy joined, um, Katerina Ruedi, um, I don't know, Trevor Garnham, you know, lots of really interesting people were teaching there. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it was another education. You know, I was exposed to a whole bunch of new ideas that I hadn't really come across before and... 
It was great. I absolutely loved it. And being in an art school environment was really, really suited me. I just um, I just really thrived under that kind of quite wacky and expansive way of doing things. They had amazing facilities through the workshops and things like that and a lovely building with um, it had been the former art school. It had a lovely roof, you know, north facing roof lights and stuff. Their studios were beautiful. And somehow, because they didn't really have a strong research reputation at that point, you, they kind of gave you freedom to do what you wanted, actually. And it was it felt like you could be very experimental and under the radar. And that really suited me. I mean, you know, I'm absolutely not an institutional animal. And the moment that an institution comes bearing down on me saying, you must do these things and you must behave like this, I go, no, <laughs> I can't do that. Sorry. So, yeah, temperamentally. So, so this was in the early early to mid 90s. Is that right? This would have been, no, late, late 80s. Um, yeah, yes, actually going into the early 90s. Yes, that is true. Yeah. Exactly. So it's so you're coming towards because it's a really interesting move. So I, I my architectural conscience, consciousness starts in the mid nineties, I guess, when I started thinking about doing it at university, and um, got that kind of new labour exciting moment where crazy shaped buildings are emerging and Frank Gehry's doing his thing in Bilbao, and, but but your work was when did you set up your practice you set up your practice at that point in the late 80s no if it's 27 years before it was yeah. 1995 yes, no it was, it was in the late it was in the late 80s i mean the era that i went through when i was at in masters i mean apart from what dalibor and peter were talking about which is this kind of a phenomenological way of thinking about it there was postmodernism yeah. <laughs> and this reinvention you know this sort of reintroduction into the conversation about history and and how we reuse history I wasn't particularly keen on the whole um, aesthetic of all of that, but the Cambridge School was very, very strong on historical precedent. Mm. And you know, we got taught the kind of Bannister Fletcher School of mm -hmm. history. And in a way, I was very critical of it at the time, but I actually think it stood me in incredibly good stead for mm -hmm. understanding the kind of canon of where we thought we'd come from. Mm -hmm. But... In, when I was at Kingston, I think the issue about identity suddenly came to the fore. And I think that was partly because art, which was part of the conversation being in that art school at Kingston, was becoming quite an important discourse within architecture. And what art seeks to do is to kind of ask questions it situates you within your, pra your own practice and your own identity and it can employ techniques and strategies, which I think can be very useful to architecture, bringing disparate things together to reveal new truths, if you like, mm -hmm. which I think were quite important at leading to the kind of architecture that I eventually began to do at Stock Orchard Street, for example. And you know, so it sort of adds a kind of critical dimension to that, to that yes. early 90s stuff, which was quite, I've got a whole group of architecture, a load of architecture today, and it's all from the late 90s, early 90s on my shelves here. And, and it is, it's, it's, if it's not post, it's almost like postmodern pastiche by that point. It's sort of gutless, really quite gutless architecture. 
So you're kind of using art as a way of adding a kind of critical dimension to this, of cont contesting exactly. it. Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I mean, in the early 90s, I guess, there was a big um, resurgence of this idea of the body. Mm. <laughs> and I remember Mark Dudek coming up to me and saying, oh, who are you? I'm Sarah Wigglesworth. Oh, what are you into? The body. Oh, God, how boring. <laughs> everyone's into that and walking off you know i was like oh really i thought i'd just discovered it <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you're gonna have to there's two things i i, I wondered if you might um uh, sort of unpack so phenomenology yeah. would you, like how, how are you how are you interpreting that specifically within this kind of are we talking here about a material kind of terrestrial textural idea or is it something more because phenomenology is very difficult to get your head around. Yeah, well, look, I'm I'm no philosopher, and I couldn't I couldn't possibly try and um, explain what Dalibor and Peter understand by it. But I suppose what I took away from it, from the sort of um, philosophical dimension, which is you know Merleau-Ponty and people like that, is that there is a kind of situated body with respect to the world. So, you know, there are things which we accept like gravity and that we're upright and that we have an outlook and the sun comes up in the east and goes down in the west. You know, those kinds of very, I mean, pragmatic and practical things for an architect. But actually, often I find architects aren't really aware of or not very interested in. Um, and then I think being female in a very masculine environment, certainly at Cambridge, really brought home to me that actually my experience of the world is quite different from a lot of other people's. And so that added another dimension. And of course, the body thing is really critical to thinking about that. So, I mean, in the early 90s, I was reading a lot of French philosophy, you know, the French um, uh, feminists, philosophers, and thinking about different ways of understanding the world through your uh, situated body. And that kind of was really important to me. And that led to desiring practices ultimately with mm. people who were like-minded, who brought those ideas together to try and do something to kind of question un understood and receive wisdom around the, the being that experiences mm. architecture, if you like. So Desiring Practices, this publication that comes out in what, 94, isn't it? No, it was not. It was actually published in 96, but it mm. was the record of a series of events that happened in 95 and we were plotting it from probably about 93 onwards so mm -hmm. it was sort of set up by myself Duncan McCorkadell and Katerina Ruedi. Um, Katerina taught with me at Kingston and Duncan was at uh, the Bartlett who was doing PhD at the AA with Mark Cousins and we just thought we needed to put a bomb under current um, sort of traditions and conventions and yeah. ask some very awkward questions and actually when we decided to hold it at the RIBA it really was to hold up a mirror yeah. to the institution saying why are you not addressing any of this in anything that we do and I I mean I, th I still think of it as being quite radical I mean we we sought papers from all over the globe and we got some really interesting things coming in and it was very sort of panoptic in the sense that it looked at practice and it looked at concepts, it looked at co concepts of sort of disability, it looked at um, eco-feminism, 
Um, it looked at drawings and the way that we make architecture. I mean, it just it had queer theory in it. I mean, it really was, I think, quite amazing in its sort of breadth. And, and then we had these 12 exhibitions, which were in venues all around London as well. And the key really was to try and move from theory to practice and show how these things could be put into action. Mm. Um, and so part of that exhibition was at the RIBA, mm. um, but many venues were elsewhere. And they, you know, a lot of people who have become quite well known, like Pete Barber, Matrix, um, Ruth Blees Luxembourg, who's an amazing photographer of urban spaces. You know, they've gone on to really glittering careers. So in some ways, I feel like, you know, we spotted some really great talent quite early on. Mm. Um, and I think the book is still really interesting. It's got a lot to say about the way we still do things, actually, which is possibly a bit depressing. <laughs> Well, no, I think, I mean, yeah, it's undoubtedly a, a little bit depressing, certainly in relation to what you're talking about, for example, as a, as a woman in architecture, where there has been tracks. So, so your practice from back in the day and your the, the way that you wrote about it has, as I said in my email to you, sort of become embedded. It's sort of a bit like participation in architecture. It's one of these things that we do now. Whether we do it very well or not is neither here nor there. But it's ah. important. So we do, we do, we think about sex and gender when we design buildings. But I was wondering whether you could, what, what, you, what, what you think the substantial changes that that moment that you were part of, that you helped form, have um, affected. Um, has there been a radical shift? Has there been a meaningful shift in the way that, for example, the female body is represented not only in, in buildings themselves, but in modes of practice, which I th and, and, and the modes of delivering architecture, drawings, technologies, um, and so on? Or is, are, are we still dealing with a kind of um, patriarchal model of architectural production? I think mm, it's really hard to answer. I mean, I think we probably are still dealing with very um, patriarchal ways of um, delivering architecture. And that's because we live in quite a technocratic and um, financially controlled environment, capitalist environment, in other words, which hasn't changed that much. And in fact, if anything, I think it's possibly made the inclusion of issues around identity and the body worse because by levering requirements to engage with people into the plan of work there are no more fees to do that you just have to do it along with everything else mm. and I think technology has become more alienating in the sense of you know you could sit down with a piece of paper with people and scribble and do all sorts of things like that and you can do that but ultimately we're being uh, asked to work um, in 3D, BIM, whatever. And that is kind of an alienation, isn't it? You know, it's not, it's mediated by mm -hmm. all sorts of um, parameters and technology, which make it much more difficult for people to engage with that. Mm. So there's a bit of a split, perhaps, between um, what we're being 
ask to produce in terms of information and actually engaging people. Mm. So, I mean, I guess what has changed is I think there is now a real recognition that communities who inhabit their environments, their homes, their schools, their, you know, the high street, etc., all of those spaces that people use in every day, they have actually an amazing knowledge and we have to tap into that because in the end, I and I do think this, that architects are sort of um, there for quite a short space of time and we're here to try and help spatialize and um, form the, the culture, sort of make manifest, if you like, the cultural relationships that already exist. Mm-hmm. So we have to tap into that knowledge. I mean, whether how well we do that is a moot point, you know, we'll never get to a truth, but I think we need to pick up on nuances which people tell us and make those meaningful and relevant to them. So, which obviously- oh, yeah. How do you do that? How do, how well, do you do that in your practice? Well, we do that by meeting people and talking to them. And the more you do it, the more uh, probably deep and nuanced your responses can be, but they're always circumscribed by money by the time you can spend to do that. Also, it depends very much on how you do it because it's about who you reach and how you reach them and making um, space for them to feel comfortable where they can put forward their views. So that is riddled with all kinds of cultural issues. It might be about time and when people can meet you. You know, they might have caring responsibilities or they may be unable to uh, I mean from a culture where they're not encouraged to speak up and so and they certainly wouldn't speak in front of men for example and but yet yeah, their experience is very different and needs to be um, heard and responded to so all of these things are really problematic mm. and you you and, and trying to get to some kind of um, optimal I mean I wouldn't say truth but I mean sort of some sense of what this community is about and stands for and its values is is hard and i'm, I'm never sure that we've completely done it but i think you have to do it um as much as you possibly can within the parameters of your project and persuade people to make that time and space mm-hmm. you know yeah. so so obviously we have yeah we have this kind of obligation within particularly housing development but various forms of development in in cities where yeah you have to you have to consult with people and that can be one-off events, and I've seen that done a number of times. I've done them myself, um, and you know full well that you're kind of sort of a Mickey take, really, isn't it? Um, can but be, you do, but you do a much more embedded thing. So you go and meet the communities, you learn about the communities. Well, we try, we try. Yeah. You know, I mean, often uh, the decisions about how it'll be done is done is upstream from us. You know, and we're just sort of responding to what the client or the uh, yeah the person who's funding it is prepared to pay and how much time they want to give to it yeah um, but do you think that there's something i mean one of the things that i kind of believe um and i'm perfectly ready to be put right by a an actual practicing architect here but that architects have a kind of um body of knowledge and expertise, which is very profound, actually. I mean, we kind of denigrate ourselves in terms of many things, but we're actually, you know, the, the architects tend to be very wise and, and know a lot of stuff. And they make, generally speaking, quite good decisions about what the shape of places and 
spaces should be? Is that not something within a participatory activity where really what you're doing, as you say, is you're trying to find out their values, but actually, in terms of, say, for example, the design aspects of things, you're the master there. Um, yeah. And, and, and you, in, in a way, it's inelegant to go and ask non-designers to, you know, like... I don't think we're necessarily asking people to be designers. I think we're asking them about what their kind of preferences or prejudices might be or, or how they regard their, you know, backyard or mm. the things they want to do within the building or whatever right. it is. And, I mean, I think I think it is quite discursive. I mean, it might simply be, you know, where do you live? How do you move around this place? You know, asking about daily routines and things right. like that. Um, things they're familiar with, things they like or dislike or whatever, whatever. Um, and then, but our role is always to try and um, express those things or spatialize those things or move it forward in one way. And I think the designer has a massive role in that. Yeah. I think the issue is to communicate that back to people and say, you know, this is what you told us about your lives or about, you know, what you do here or what you want this building to be about. This is what we understood from that. Is that what you think, you know, mm -hmm. and read it back? But I think we have a massive role in uh, giving shape to some of those things which people are not familiar with how to do. And we should feel proud of that. You know, that is what we've learned in architecture school. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't uh, feel at all kind of apologetic about adding that to what people tell us because mm. that's that's what we're here for yeah yeah I, I, mean, I was looking at some of the, the work on on your the elegant website by the way very nice to use the, Thank sandal, you. the sandal magnet primary school oh. for example was that that was an oh what was that is that a is that a, a project oh, no i love that building i love that building it was yeah. a, it's a very very interesting building it's a very beautiful building um yeah really nicely designed sort of sustainable school so you've got, you brought in into that both, I think, because when I was looking through various ones of your projects, maybe you want to start, talk about Stock Orchard Street a bit as well, but that particular school and, and other work that you've done, there's this idea of the body in it, and, and you create environments, not, I suppose, totally dissimilar to the work of someone like Peter Hubner, where you've got a real, to create a kind of complexity which enables people to see and be around each other but also to create you know the necessary isolation that's required in a school and so on and so forth mm -hmm. and then you also bring in your knowledge around sustainability and materials and and, and health and well-being into that environment so it's like a, a, a sort of a, sort of a co-productive a co-produced environment it gives me that impression anyway well, I'm glad because I think we are always looking to pick up clues from the people we speak to who are, you know, resident in the communities we work in. And in the case of something like Sandal Magna, um, it all started because the school wanted an eco school and the head said, well, you know, you've got to build it out of of, of um, brick because that's the local vernacular. Yeah. And we've never built a brick building before. So that started a conversation. But then we felt it was a... Um, an opportunity for us to work with cross-laminated timber. So then that got added to the mix. Then we felt, well, both of those things could be then fair-faced so that we make the 
materials the building is made of very apparent to the students and it uh, manifests exactly what it is on the tin, so to speak. And so the, the whole kind of eco agenda began to develop from that. Then, of course, we were very, very interested in um, fabric first approach and making it a passive design so that the fabric would do most of the work for you with, you know, um, natural ventilation and wind towers and so on. So, you know, and gradually, gradually, the agenda for the building is sort of emerged out of that. Um, and in a way, it ended up being looking like a kind of baby factory in a way, you know, um, I mean, I wouldn't say that school is a factory for children, but I mean, I think, you know, it's a it's a working class um, ex coal mining, you know, terraced house uh, sort of typology in that area. And we were kind of tapping into but making a, a civic statement around a familiar environment. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, giving a riff on that so that um, it did all the things it needed to do for the brief, but it also felt familiar. Mm. And in Stock Orchard Street, I think that, for example, I think that agenda was rather different because there we were trying to experiment, you know, and it's a kind of ongoing experiment because we keep changing it, but experiment in what a kind of urban eco house could be, again, using passive principles, but much more collagey, you know, this idea of kind of crashing, things crashing into each other, like high tech things with low tech things and sort of, and in a way through that, asking questions about why does anything have to be thoroughly high tech, you know, and what do we mean by that anyway? I mean, I think we are a bit narrow in the way we think about what a high technology could be you know i mean maybe a a very very dense straw bale is actually quite a high technology if you want a a really good insulation you know why not that's the great bat actually (laughs) do do you see what i mean um and a lot of things that manifest as high technology they're actually quite crafted and put together by hand anyway and a, a lot of architecture is really a kind of collage of sampled materials that get stuck together in some way. And the difference is to do with responsibilities. So you try and get somebody to take responsibility for an entire package that involves windows and cladding, you know, and, 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 and all of it gets wrapped up and called the cladding system, you know, but actually it's lots of different things that come together. So I think we are kind of trying to manifest something around that actually a lot of technology is actually quite crafted. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a quite, a quite an interesting one. It does, I mean, it, it's very different from, from the uh, Sandal Magna School, as you, as you pointed out, you know, it's a, you use this word familiar, which I thought was really interesting, like trying to create a sense of familiarity, but also newness and yeah. to try and, and to, use the materials and the spaces of the materials and the perspectives that, give, that you are able to encounter the materials and the, the architecture gives a, kind of communicates the radicalness of the idea as well. But exactly. Stock Orchard Street is quite clearly a radical building, yeah. but it's also both of them are very material and that goes yes. back to this idea of the phenomenological in your work. Exactly. I think, I mean, I, I do think that's of great interest to myself. Um, 
and probably is a theme throughout the work because I think we are very apt to ignore the sensory in architecture, the sensory and the tactile mm -hmm. and the textural and all of those things. So, you know, going back to ideas about architecture coming out of weaving and women's crafts and things like that is, mm -hmm. is of great interest to me. But it's also, you know, I really got very excited by the work of certain artists. I mean, I love Phyllida Barlow's work. I love Jessica Stockholder's work where she'll take, you know, really really scrappy old things and put them together in really interesting ways. And that kind of um, collage of things I find really interesting, but it's not accidental. I think it's quite deliberate. And sometimes when we've been accused of sort of having too many materials and, you know, too this and too fruity and high cholesterol and all the rest of it, actually, mostly it was quite carefully considered and, you know, with, with, references to things which were um you know well sort of researched and thought about before we went for them so if you take something like the sandbags you know which actually are a mechanism to keep the noise of trains down basically mm -hmm. you know it's a it's a self-build item that's number one thing it was done on site it's also a reference to a kind of, I suppose, we're in a pretty gritty urban environment and we don't particularly like this noise from trains, you know. So there's a kind of um, uh, emotional echo in that, perhaps. It's obviously got a whole sort of resonance around Churchill's bunker and war and, you know, the urban jungle and all of that type thing. And, I, you know, to us, that's just funny. That's sort of a silly aspect of it. I mean, but especially when you see the, the sandbags with um, the tower above, it's actually slightly sinister. But then the windows are framed in old sleepers. And so it looks like the last gunfight, the Corral, you know, and there's all of these kind of visual references, which I think are quite fun in a way. Mm -hmm. And and it's sort of none of it was really uh, well, none of that side of it was really thought about. But I mean, but it was all about trying to make something that encouraged others to think of simple techniques which could be made on site. Mm -hmm. and didn't require masses of skill, actually. That was sort of what, what it started off being. And you've been doing work on it recently, trying to bring it down to, uh, trying to insulate it. Re-insulate it? Well, it? a number of things, actually. So it started with that we thought after 20 years, we would perhaps do an eco-retrofit because, you know, what was cutting edge 20 years ago was actually designed to 1996 building regs. It's not very good nowadays compared with where we've come. I mean, you know, arguably we could do a lot better, but let's just say that things are caught up. And um, we also had this 20 years of post-occupancy evaluation. <laughs> so we knew what worked and we knew where, uh, you know, we liked to sit and all the good things about it. But what we did was commissioned a load of... Um, uh, studies so doing things like um, thermal imaging and air tightness testing and u-value calculations with probes through the wall and uh, we looked at energy bills and we got someone to build passive house uh, model of it looking at energy consumption and so forth so that identified a whole number of areas which we knew we could improve 
and where, for example, we were having cold bridging and losing heat through that. And it was an opportunity to re um, to replace some of the kit, which was sort of getting to the end of its life. I mean, typically, air source, uh, sorry, the um, MVHR was sort of coming to the end of its life. Uh, we felt we needed to replace a boiler that was also about to end, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it was an opportunity to sort of redo all of those things and do, do it much better. And we pretty much pulled the place apart bit by bit and air tightness taped up a lot of stuff and then replaced it <laughs> and insulated, for example, under the undercroft. We replaced some windows. We replaced some very leaky roof lights with much better roof lights, um, solid roofs with roof lights in them and things like that. Nice. Um, but, you know, I think it's, Oh, and also we spent a bit of money just doing things which we ran out of money for, like putting a decent oak floor down and things like that, because uh, hitherto it had been plywood. And it suddenly feels really cosy and really solid for the first time ever. And we've cut our carbon emissions by 62%, which is absolutely amazing. Yeah. I mean, we could have gone further had we spent a lot more money, but it already cost quite a, a lot. And But at the same time, Jeremy and I decided we wanted to stay here into our older age. And so we took the opportunity to make it age friendly. And I just finished that project at uh, Sheffield called the Dwell Project, which was designing for well-being in environments for later life. Um, so it was a grant-funded research project, which um, meant we were designing um, dwellings for older people, you know, so they could thrive. And using all of that knowledge, applied it to Stock Orchard Street. And so we've worked out where we can get a lift. We've mm -hmm. um, made, we've kind of put handrails in various places so that we can walk around safely. <laughs> we've got a walk-in shower. We've made the downstairs into a suite where a carer could live independently if they wanted to with, um, you know, utility room and so forth. So, which... It's kind of almost independent from us. So we've made a lot of things work, but mm. there's a lot that's really good about it already because it's got brilliant daylight. Um, yeah, and it's just a very delightful place to live. And if you like a place, you're going to care for it. Yeah. And, um, you know, we need to we needed to make it work for us getting as we grow older. And we wanted to do it before we got into a sort of crisis situation, uh, which is typically what most people do. Yeah, exactly. Panic architecture. Exactly. The, um, the, the, this idea around bodies. So uh, uh, we've been talking about sustainability without using the word sustainability, talking about the technical side of it. Um, and, I, and your work has always foregrounded sustainable thinking, but in a very holistic sense of the social and cultural and, and, uh, and the economic side of sustainability. Yeah. Um, as well as, as the, the sort of the big three sustainabilities, um, and I was wondering before we talked about that, I was I was just thinking about this idea of body and this this situated kind of mode of practice and the, and the architecture that comes off the back of that. So you've been working with Ebbsfleet Development Corporation on the is it a new town? I can't, I can't work it out. I mean, I live I was over there yesterday. Can't work out if it's a new town or just a new thing. Um, and you're work so you're working at a really big scale at this point. Yeah. Does your does your kind of philosophy, this kind of um, yeah bodily phenomenological um, 
justice, more justice-orientated architecture work at the scale of big developments like that? How does it operate in that space? I think it's more difficult for it to work at that environment unless in that in that scale, unless you have control over a lot of the things that control those kind of environments. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, at Ebbsfleet, I guess the issues that um, exercised us were about, in a way, um, justice, so food justice, um, access to open space justice and transport because there's a it, it's riddled with infrastructure going through Ebbsfleet, which includes you know the high speed line to canterbury and beyond the high speed to the continent it's got the a2 old watling street you know blah blah it's got loads of infrastructure but and it's, got the, the, it's got the river of course it's got the river that's right and but what's not really working at the moment is the kind of movement at a local level between riverine communities and other places in the in the area including um you know the bits which will eventually join up to form to make the healthy garden city of which you know the center is currently out to uh planning outline planning and which will be aggregated around the international station and that's the project you're working on well, we're working on a tiny site within that master plan, mm. which, um, you know, doesn't exist at the moment and requires a massive amount of infrastructure to um, happen. And we're not quite sure how or when that will happen because it's all got to get funded, et cetera, et cetera. But it's inching forward bit by bit. But I mean, I think... I think um, that the, the building we were designing within this master plan is called the Health and Wellbeing Hub. And it's essentially a community facility which um, offers social prescribing activities for people mm -hmm. as well as healthcare. And it's a new model for how to deliver healthy life for people by not giving them a pill, you know, not not giving them what is sort of the traditional way of treating people. But a new traditional well yeah exactly it's about, it's about your, your whole body actually yeah. and so, you know if you present with say um depression it might be that your um the care navigator sends you to somebody who unpacks what what's going on in your life that means you're depressed and it might be you know that you're lonely or it might be you've got financial worries or it might be you've got housing problem or it might be you've got problems within your family. It could be all sorts of things. And actually they're treatable, but but, but not as a medical problem, mm -hmm. as something else. And so it, it offers all sorts of other ways of potentially dealing with these problems. And it needs to link up, you know, the voluntary sector, the medical sector, and the local authority sector. So it's a, an absolutely fantastic idea for what future care can be in the community but self-care you know and it involves intergenerational housing as well so the idea that you're not reliant on buying care in but you know it comes from family kinship networks neighbors people of different ages offering mm -hmm. different skill sets and so on and so forth to each other um, as a kind of informal way of looking after each other but I mean, the food thing is really interesting because we're in the Garden of England in North Kent there. And yet, um, you know, 
many of these communities do not have access to good, fresh, healthy food. There's no market there. And um, the nearest sort of place to buy food is a big supermarket. And it's difficult to get to, so everybody drives. Um, and it suffers all the traditional problems of, um, you know, of our society, which is uh, obesity, heart disease, you know, diabetes, and so on and so forth. And it's trying to unlock how mm. to solve those problems, but through daily life rather yeah. than going to see your doctor. Yeah. So it's really, really interesting. And I mean, it, it gets quite deep into what's really, really going on in the community. And there we did a lot of engagement with people yeah what did that look like loads lots and lots of interviews lots of meetings lots of group meetings lots of discussions with absolute development corp um yeah i mean it's interesting it's a really nice section on on, our image sectional image on your website about it it's almost like you're 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 talking about it like um i mean that the risk with a place like that, as far as I can see, is that it turns into some kind of anonymous urban sprawl with very expensive houses for people who work in London or... Yeah. Um, but that's what they're, they're trying to not do. Yeah. And Ebsfleet, you know, there are people at Ebsfleet who are guardians of trying to not do that and trying mm. to make sure that it's um, it's something radically different from what's mm. come before. I think the issue for other architects is you do need a kind of visionary guardian of the concept of the vision you know um that that can hold it throughout the very very long period of time it'll take to produce this Mm. piece of architecture and probably it'll happen way beyond you know my involvement in it um and and i think that kind of golden thread of who is the sort of guardian of this um this vision is absolutely critical Mm. because you know in all the machinations of trying to get it done if that's not held on to it will get diluted or um you know corrupted in some form or another and it will be a sort of pale vision of what you know it could be i think it's really interesting that you did a research project to kind of form this this dwell project i mean how did that come about what did that look like how does an how does an architect as busy as you how does an architect well, that was while I was at Sheffield and, you know, as a a kind of practitioner academic, mm-hmm. I was sort of looking for a way of finding a research project which could use my skills as a designer. Mm-hmm. And then this thing just popped into the ether, uh, a call from um, Hefke, where three funding bodies had got together and presumably someone further upstream had had a really brilliant idea of trying to bring these three um, funding bodies together. So um, arts and humanities, social science and engineering, EPSLC, um, to kind of joint fund this thing. Not in the same proportions, it must be said. AHRC was quite a small proportion, but that was the design element of it. Um to, to try and sort of crunch this problem of how to design neighbourhoods and housing which address well-being and mobility. And, I mean, I'd just been through a period when my parents had gone through a very, very difficult demise and ended up dying, both of them for different reasons. 
my dad had dementia, my mom had motor neurone disease, and, you know, it didn't end well. And they really struggled to sort of cope during their latter years and sort of three years of absolute hell and watching, um, you know, them kind of go through this period. I was sort of, it made me think, my goodness, there's a massive job to be done to try and make our homes fit for aging. Mm. And when this thing came along, I thought, God, this is a no brainer. You know, it's got design. It's got um, it's got engineering. It's got this really interesting agenda around age and what, you know, the lens of age could tell us about how we all live, actually, because, I mean, age, it's not just older people. It's young. It's it's mm -hmm. tiny tots. It's babies, you know, and it's the people who care for them and, and all the rest of it. It's, and aging is basically it's a process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we tend to think of it as being, you know, and young adults uh, and going through families but actually it's sort of bookended by these sort of two events of birth and death and mm. I think we overlook that at our peril and I think I suppose the big takeaway from what we learned was that or at least if I could kind of paraphrase it a bit like this, it's like, actually, if you can design for this older age group, you've basically designed for everybody, actually, because you're looking at people with all sorts of kind of disabilities or all kinds of abilities, and you're making spaces big enough for them to adapt in the longer term. Mm -hmm. It does have implications for um, size, size of dwellings, um, and we came up with a kind of optimal dwell size of dwelling, which was somewhere between normal, I mean, the um, in uh, building regs sort of um, M42 and M43. And that was really interesting because actually the implication is if we really want to make long lasting dwellings, they've got to be bigger. Actually, the drift is to make them smaller, mm. <laughs> micro flats and things like that because of affordability and so forth. But actually that's not really the longer term way to do it. Um, and also kinship models because different families live in different ways. And I think increasingly um, younger people who can't get on the housing ladder are forming their own kinship networks of living together in shared households, mm. which suit their lifestyle more than living in a kind of nuclear family. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's, we need lots more of every type of dwelling but we definitely need to think about older people's dwellings as well mm. yeah as an issue of justice you're right i mean i often think that when i my, my own parents uh, my, my father's um, older now and um you know usual things with being older um sore legs and whatnot and um the world becomes very complicated at that point and, and, and a, even a home, you know, if, if the public realm is is um, difficult, the home can become extremely difficult. So it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's a conundrum for us with an aging population that we have this housing stock that we're, at the moment, we're updating for sustainability, but we possibly, as you have been doing in your own home, updating it at the same time for accessibility and, and exactly. uh, uh, intergenerational living as well. Um, but this issue of uh, how do you do? How does one design for for holistic sustainability? Just to throw the huge question at you, just like that. <laughs> um, I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because as I said again in my email to you, they, they seem to pull in separate directions. How can you have you know, economic growth and 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 environmental um, justice? I mean, um, or environmentalism? Yeah. 
it's, it's well it's, I, okay Ambrose I'm not sure we can have growth in the way that we have known it up to now okay. um, economic growth and I think that is a sort of um, horrible truth that may be dawning on us I mean as we get poorer and inflation is rampant and energy goes up you know to levels where you know in a way perhaps perhaps we should be paying more for energy because perhaps we're too profligate with it and we need to think about actually making our buildings much more resilient to not using so much energy so you know optimizing our daylight and insulating our homes much better so that we are not having to use energy i mean and that's what everybody's telling us that fabric first has got to be the way to do it but we have a really old building stock in this country so retrofitting it is going to be a really big issue and not cheap either because it's very complicated to do it well as a whole house affair rather than just in a sort of single item and then of course we've got to decarbonize our grid um and i and i guess we've got to live in a way where we are um happy to live using less of everything you know including energy actually mm. um and i think that's it's such a, a shame that the discourse isn't really more about that in the big wide world but i think the current weather we're having has suddenly made people really wake up to um the fine the sort of finiteness of all sorts of resources like water for example that's so very evident at the moment and the energy bill crisis, um, you know, with the sort of switching off of the gas from Russia and all that is, is really drawing attention as well to mm. our vulnerability if it runs out and so mm. forth. Um, so I think I think the conversation is really beginning to change. But I think the key for me is actually making a narrative which isn't doom and gloom, but actually saying, do you know what? We could live better this way. We could live mm. smarter and better. Mm. So, for example, I think COVID is quite interesting in that regard because um, by being stuck at home, we rediscovered our local economy mm. and we uh, started to value things like nature and open space and being able to get out and walk and things like that. You know, and those are things which we which are available to us all the time, but we're rushing around traveling and flying and doing all this stuff. And actually, I think slowing down and you know valuing what's perhaps on your doorstep more and valuing the people in your life who you were deprived of seeing you know all of those things are still there and still really really important mm. and i think it, i think we do need a bit of a shift in values that is permanent and so we don't go back to the old ways of doing yeah. and in that you know we consumed differently we consume some things less and you know maybe those are good things in the end of the day we 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 change the value system that we're living by which could actually end up being much better for us better for our well-being better for our families better for our social life etc etc yeah yes and and what i think your work seems to me to do is to try and balance those things so this you talked about the you know the, the way that sustainability and you talked about it in the kind of environmental technical sense and then talked about the kind of the way that COVID or for example because I really do think what COVID did more than anything is just peel back the lid on reality like you were like oh crap um this is this is not good we are very vulnerable in this kind of way but there's something there yeah there's something rather lovely about the way that you, you've spoken about your your work and your, and your, and your thinking that is um 
yeah, about this kind of situatedness. And, and, and in a way, all of your work has already been doing the stuff that you're talking about, which is, which is sort of trying to connect people better to the material reality of their world. Through, Absolutely. And, and, and doing it, as you, as you pointed out with your, with your home, in, 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 in um, intelligent, humorous ways as well. So it's not po-faced, worthy architecture, but it's an architecture of joy and delight. Well, I think of it as like that. I mean, I think we have been accused of being a bit sort of worthy and holier than thou and all the rest of it. But um, I, that? Uh, I wouldn't possibly tell you on, <laughs> in public. But <laughs> um, and, and it's also been kind of accused of being a bit twee and sort of playing at being rural and all of these things. I mean, I can tell you that. I haven't bought a vegetable in a shop now for about two months because we are brimming with stuff in our garden and it is just a joy to be able to eat the stuff that you grow, you know. Mm. I mean, we're very lucky because we've got some external space. Um, but I think I think of buildings as being, in a sense, another layer of clothing and that we have to interact with that and understand that we can adjust it. And I think, you know, in a way, I think the worst kind of architecture is that which... You know, you have sealed windows, a building management system where you have no control over it, where um, and, and, and we know that people in offices, for example, women and men um, feel very differently about the temperatures coming out through the building management system and who that's sort of set for and so on and so on. And in a way, although um, it might be very low tech, that ability to adjust your and control your own environment through the way that you operate it, I think is ultimately very, very empowering. Mm -hmm. And it's important and people are very alienated from that as a concept these days. But um, I mean, if you, if you, you know, lived in a kind of house with sash windows or, or casement windows, like you can see how, you know, opening it changes the environment and your ability to do that is really important. It's your, you're engaging with your environment through doing that. Mm. Um, and, and in our house, it's really interesting how, I mean, we, we live on the first floor and it's timber and it's much warmer here in this current weather than downstairs where we've got a concrete slab, it's probably five degrees difference in temperature. So when it gets really warm, we go downstairs and sleep in the bedroom on the ground floor. And actually, when you think about it, that's exactly what used to happen in traditional Iranian houses, which I'm, you know, I, I personally find very, very interesting because, you know, they have underground rooms cooled by wind towers and water to humidify, humidify the work, the, 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 the air coming in, making, you know, 45 degrees outside, 29 degrees in that space. And so, and by moving around the courtyard um, as the sun moves and being able to go down and use wind to cool and water to cool, you, you're able to temper the environment naturally without any power at all through the architecture and that's what i find really interesting and i think we're in danger of losing those that understanding losing those skills because we just think a piece of kit can do it for us mm. i'm not saying kit is useless of course it isn't and it has you know of course what, what you know the, the the sort of architecture i'm talking about 
in in Iran, traditional houses, they're massive and we haven't got space for that anymore. But I think the principles still exist. Mm. And if that kind of thing could be done through an MVHR, we can change the settings or controls, but still get your fresh air in, which, by the way, is also very good for COVID, you know, why not? You know, we, we need to employ these techniques, but understand how we can interact with the architecture around us to do the things we need it to do and to do them simply and without, uh, you know, without needing a PhD to understand how to control it <laughs> um, individually. You yeah. know, that's what we should be aiming at. Brilliant. Um, thank you very much, Sarah. That was a wonderful that was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed speaking to you. Um, really lovely to hear about your work and get the opportunity to dig around in your imagination a little bit. <laughs> well, it's lovely to have the opportunity. Thank you for inviting me. Perfection. Thank you to Sarah for the great conversation and, to be honest, for even deigning to do it. Please see the podcast description for links to Sarah's practice, to other talks she's given and essays by her and on her work. Go see Stock Orchard Street when you're next up London. And don't forget to... etc. Thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs>